You're listening to Couch Kicker, sponsored by Action Challenge, the podcast that wants you to push yourself further. My name's Jan, I'm your host, and this is episode one. Welcome to episode one of Couch Kicker, sponsored by Action Challenge. My name's Jan, and I've spent the last 10 years working in adventure travel and challenge events. And through that, you know, I've been lucky enough to have climbed mountains, trekked deserts, done some really exciting things. But in the time in between those adventures, I've increasingly just been getting comfortable on my own couch, working towards completing Netflix, and creating a big old groove in the shape of my backside on the cushions. And I wanted that to stop. You know, I found more and more I was missing out on the inspiration to get out, get active, when it wasn't this big organized challenge, but just as part of the day-to-day. So I started this podcast because I wanted to speak to people who would inspire me to get out and do more, not just the big stuff, but all those little things in the day-to-day that are good for your physical and mental well-being, uh, because the couch is an addiction, ladies and gentlemen, and together we can kick it. With this podcast, I want to bring you conversations with guests who inspire me and hopefully will inspire you too. Speaking of guests, we've got some great guests lined up for our first run of episodes. We've got world record-breaking cyclists, we've got Everest summiteers, we've got travel journalists and broadcasters, and more. There's something for everyone in these, and I really hope that when you listen to them, there will be something in there that inspires you to push yourself further and get out there and do a little bit more. Before we get to our first guest, uh, we do have some quick business to attend to with some words from our sponsors. Whether your next big challenge is climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, trekking out to Machu Picchu in Peru, or taking on an ultra marathon, getting yourself the right kit can be a confusing, time-consuming, expensive experience. It'll just send your head spinning. But don't worry, our friends at Outdoor Hire have got your back. Now, unless you're regularly heading out on expeditions, why should you drop hundreds or thousands of pounds on new kit that you're only gonna use once when you can simply rent it for a fraction of the cost? Outdoor Hire, they've got this great service, I've used it myself, where you tick a few boxes on their website and like magic, a box will arrive on your doorstep with all the kit that you need for your challenge. When you're done with it, you just send it back. No slogging around various shops, dealing with a load of confusing options and salespeople. And the best part of it is that listeners to the podcast will get 10% of any full price rental with Outdoor Hire when you use the code COUCH10 over at outdoorhire.co.uk. That's COUCH10 at outdoorhire.co.uk. So you've got your kit sorted, but what are you going to do with it? Well, our headline sponsor, Action Challenge, will have something for you. Whether you want to climb a mountain, trek to wonders of the world, or take on some of the finest trekking and running terrain right here in the UK, Action Challenge live up to the name. They have both action and challenge in abundant supply. They are the leading UK operator on Mount Kilimanjaro. They've taken over 6,000 people up to the summit accompanied by their trained mountain leaders and medics. And they also run treks, they run cycles, they run challenges. They will take you anywhere from the Sahara Desert or Machu Picchu to the Great Wall of China and even the mighty Himalayas. Head on over to actionchallenge.com, take a look at the challenges they offer, and then take advantage of our exclusive offer, giving listeners to the Couch Kicker podcast 100 pounds of any overseas challenge when you use code COUCH, that's C-O-U-C-H, at actionchallenge.com. And so, on to our guest. This guy is one of the most formidable human beings that I've ever met. He's a former Special Forces Commando. He's a world record breaker. He's friends with royalty. He is Mr. Dean Stott. Dean Stott, thanks for joining me on Couch Kicker. 
before we kind of dive into the details, do you want to give the listeners just a quick introduction to yourself and your background? Yeah, so um, I'm a double world record holder cyclist, uh, ex-UK Special Forces, and um, uh, a married man of two children. Um, I actually finished your book, uh, Relentless, this week. Uh, Gotta say, mate, loved it. Uh, really inspirational. I've actually already put in an order for a bike. Um, probably not going to start off with something like the Pan Am, uh, like you did, maybe just a few you know, cycles in the woods. But I mean, in that, you tell uh, a really kind of good story about uh, you know, your record breaking cycle. You touch on your background in the army, in the private security industry. I think you actually split the book into like, it's almost like thirds, isn't it, between those three phases. Um, before we get on to like the detail of the challenge and stuff, I wanted to kind of cover a bit about your early days. So before you started your military career, I'm going right back to the start, something that you mentioned in the book, you dabbled about with surfing. Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, I, I was born into a military family. My, my father was in the military and then so I was known as what's called a pads brat. So every three years we would, when my father got posted to, we would move locations um, with him. But if we were, every time we were in UK, every summer holiday, my father would take us down to Newquay. Uh, we'd always go to Cornwall, um, surfing so i started off bodyboarding on a a polystyrene um cutout uh, as most kids probably did back in them days and then progressed onto into having my own surfboard and very much look forward to the summers uh, down there um, and it's just a place that I, I was very comfortable being in the water from a young age and went on to college and uh, me and my friends decided to go on holiday to Nuki. Um, my friends didn't surf at all. Their intentions were just to get drunk and have as many parties. Um, however, I, I bumped into a, a friend, a still a, a lifelong friend, a guy called Jan, who was a Norwegian surfer. And he was silver surface waitering at the time. And he was telling me about how he'd get um, breakfast and dinner for free. Uh, he'd get £30 a day cash in his hand and it was only £10 for the hostel. So I was supposed to go back two weeks later with my friends back to, back to college in Surrey. And I never, I stayed, stayed in Newquay and just carried on surfing and did that for about six months. But this was oh, 1994, long before mobile phones or social media. So my father came looking for me. Um, <laughs> he found me, not, in fact, he then found me a couple of days later being in Newquay and then you know, quickly highlighted to me that I'd, I'd thrown away my education and, you know, what are you going to do with your life now? And as I mentioned, he was in the military. My grandparents were in the military as well. So I just stopped him nagging in my ear. I said, well, I'll join, I'll join the army. And um, he said, you'll last two minutes. And that was his response. And um, that's been very much a motivator in my life since, you know, as my story sort of unveils, you know, I like to prove people wrong. Um, I, I genuinely believe there's no point in arguing with someone you're blue in the face you know you're not going to change their perception what does do though is actions mm -hmm. and so i did i went on and, and joined the military and my father was in the royal engineers so i know i followed suit uh, with that and after by the age of 21 i was now a para commando a diver and a pti i'd done every arduous course that you could do in the corps of the engineers uh, bar one, which was uh, UK Special Forces. Wow. I mean, I think that image of like your typical surfer, uh, it's a bit different to your Special Forces operative. You know, I don't think you get away with the bleach blonde hair. No, not at all. Well, I've got no hair at all now. But obviously, mm. I, I, looking back though, in hindsight, I don't know whether it was reverse psychology from my father, whether it was something he wanted to motivate me. But also, I was about nine and a half stone and five foot seven soaking wet through. So I could probably see where he was coming from. But as I joined the military and I started doing these courses. I started growing as well. I was still growing as a young man, uh, but I then started become more confident in my own abilities as well. And I think it was the mental thing. Once I started achieving things and passing things and also passing at a high standard, it was almost like, well, what's next? You know, what is the next thing that I, I could do? And, and that was a great thing about the military. It really in a short period of time, gave you a lot of confidence. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it comes across in the book, like the sort of development of your confidence as you go from like step to step. But that um, comment from your dad, you know, you wouldn't last two minutes, does seem to be a big driving factor. How long did you think you'd last in the army when you went in? Were you confident that you'd get through that basic training or did you share that doubt and want to prove him wrong? Um, I, I was confident I'd get through basic training, you know, as as anyone when they when they come from civilian street it's, it's a culture shock 
you know, there was a, a, I think week five, I remember calling my father, you know, probably queuing for a payphone, you know, for about two, uh, two hours and the instructors had just ripped my locker. You know, I'd spent hours on it and, and I have an OCD. I like things to be very meticulous and they just tore my locker apart and it was almost like, well, what's the point? You know, that's, and I remember calling my father and he then, he then opened up and said, it's all a game. Just play the game. And, you know, and, and I, I, I sort of got it then. And then, in the future going on as being an instructor myself in, in a few of the establishments, you do understand it's a game. And one of the, one of the things my dad did say to me then um, is, is you need just have a sense of humor, you know, just don't take things too serious, uh, have a sense of humor. And that's a, a big factor in the military. You need to have a, a sense of humor. And I did have a sense of humor failure when I called him. Um, but my father, a very old school Scottish guy, he never opened up, didn't talk about his time in the military. So it was only when I was calling him from that military environment that he then started to open up and tell me a bit more about his, his life. And, that, and that's where our bond even got stronger, I think. Interesting that you say your dad didn't open up about you know, the, the army and the military until you said you were going in there, because I think it's quite clear you progressed like really quickly through you know, different levels. You took on different skill sets. And obviously, I think you were the first to take on the commando training from the army and pass that uh, test. Um, do you think that kind of helped, you know, your dad almost kind of setting things out, giving you a bit of a, a, a kind of blueprint for how things work, as opposed to some guys who maybe come in a bit green, don't have that insight into how things work? Yeah, I, I think my father generally probably didn't want me to join the military. It was, it was great that he, he never forced it on me. You know, I see a lot of guys, a lot of guys I serve with and, and even um, recruits that are coming in now and you ask them the question of oh, why did you join the military oh because my dad told me or my brother was in it and things like that so you know I was very fortunate you know it wasn't something I was forced to continue that tradition it was something I decided to do but my father he was known as what we call a tracksuit soldier so he was the army football manager coach and player so his career was based around his sport and abilities and from that what I got from that as a young age is being very quite is being competitive but I got posted to Germany straight away after training to play football for the army champions over there. And I soon realized that actually I don't want to just be following what my father did. I wanted to carve, carve my own path. And that's when I went on and did like the all arms commando course, uh, you know, the diving course, the PTI course, stuff that he hadn't done. It was almost, that was my father's career. I want to do something, something different. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's what happened. And then, I, um, as you touched on now, I became, um, I decided to go to the UK Special Forces Selection, which is, uh, you have the SAS and the SBS. In the past, normally the SBS was 100% Royal Marines would go there and the Army would go SAS, but they opened up tri-service because the Marines who didn't like diving would go into the SAS. I was a senior diving instructor at the Defence Diving School at this point, and so for me, Again, that, that love of the water, I was very comfortable in that environment. I'd spent eight years in free commander brigade. And so for me, it was almost a natural transition. So myself and one of my friends, you know, became one of the first guys to, you know, do selection for the, uh, for the SBS, much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS. Um, but six months later, you know, the course is combined. There's no difference between them. You work together. And six months later, I was successful. And I, I think now about 15% at least the SPS are from the army. So it was almost, we were the, we were the guinea pigs, as we like to say, I and mean, then the floodgates then opened. Yeah, something I was not really aware of. I mean, I'll be honest until reading your book about this kind of distinction between your SES, SPS and the roots, roots into that and how, you know, in that world, I mean, I think you mentioned it's a lot more common now than it was then. Um, did, how did you find kind of going through that process? Because you talk a little bit about the whether it's resistance or whether it's, you know, people trying to test you when you first kind of made that move. I think you tell a good story about uh, printing off and laminating a, a picture and showing it yeah. to an instructor. Um, you know, do, do you think those kind of barriers are still there or, you know, has that opened up a little bit more? Now? I think it's opened up a lot more, actually. Um, you know, in years of past, the SPS would have their own selection process and the SAS would have theirs. So there was always that rivalry. Now it's joint. They understand that, everyone's been through that same process, that same selection process. So that, but when I went through, it was almost like, what are you doing? Because I came from uh, five, nine commando in recce troop and we had a hundred percent pass rate. So it was almost like, 
why are you going that way? Um, and it was more nerves from the SES instructors that he may start something here that others will, will follow. Because obviously that takes away the manning and numbers from them. And um, as you rightly uh, touched on, I, um, the checkpoints for the first uh, phase of selection, you do four weeks of basically running up and down the mountains. It's called aptitude. And um, I would run to the top of the mountain and the instructors would be there in their tent. And uh, one of the instructors used to be at my old unit. And he used to say to me, he said, right, stop. He said, why are you going to the SBS? And I said, well, because I like diving. He said, that's not a good enough answer. He didn't use those words, a bit more, a bit more, uh, a bit more sweary. Uh, that's not the right answer. Pick up a rock. So I'd have to pick up a, a rock, stick it in my Bergen. And he would screenshot that rock as well. And then obviously radio to the end that this rock's in there. So I was actually carrying extra weight for the first two weeks. And two weeks into, I thought, I can't keep doing this. Can't just keep picking up this rock. <laughs> um, so I, I went home at a weekend and as it, I, I Googled Bournemouth Beach. And it was like a, a double page spread of Bournemouth Beach of topless women in a heat wave. And I thought, perfect. So I, lam I printed that off and laminated it and put it in my map pocket. And then on the Monday, I got to the top of the hill, same instructor. He's like, right, stop. Why are you going to uh, SBS? And I, I put my weapon on my feet so it obviously doesn't get dirty. And I, I, I took out this picture and I said, because that's, that's not in Hereford, that's in Poole. And you know, him and the other instructor laughed. And that's where that humor, where my father said, you need to have a sense of humor. You need to be a bit of a character. Uh, and they never, I never picked up a rock since, but I, I then, but I made sure that that stayed in my pocket for the next six months. Um, should anyone ask, else ask that question? But yeah, humor is one of the ethoses of the special forces. You need to have a sense of humor because when times are hard or you're in dark places, you need to pull on them. Be interesting if somebody found that picture without context to be like, why are you carrying around all these pictures of topless yeah, women? True, true. <laughs> true yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you don't, uh, and I guess you can't cover a lot of what you did whilst, yeah. whilst in the special forces, but in the book, you do talk a bit more about the like private security work you did. And like the book opens with this like really high drama scene where you're out in, I think, Yemen. Yeah. And just as it's about to kick off, you do this thing that they do in films where it like cuts and goes 10 years earlier. And I'm like, you'd better finish that story yeah, yeah, as I'm yeah, reading yeah. through the book. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do get to the end of it, but I mean, the book's really like cinematic in places. And I was just going to say, is there another like book out there where you could maybe expand a bit more about the work you did um, on that private security circuit? I, I think so, yeah. So I sort of going back slightly, I, I had to leave the Special Force. After 16 years in the military, I had a parachute accident. So it wasn't something I... I chose to, I didn't choose to leave. I, I prematurely had to leave. I, I had a, a tore my ACL, my MCL, lateral meniscus, my hamstring, my calf, and my quads, all the supporting muscles. I mean, as you rightly touched on there, people with my uh, skill sets without sounding like Liam Neeson is the private security sector. And, um, but no, you're, you're right. There's, there's so many stories. And what I loved about the private security sector is it was almost like the military, but you weren't being governed by certain guidelines. And we'll probably touch on a couple of situations that I was in but with the book as you mentioned it's in it's in three stages it's almost three books in one you, you've got your the, the childhood and the military uh, the private security which I could go on and on and do two books at least and then the bike ride so it's almost uh, condensed but you're right there's some of the stories in that book you know the single-handedly evacuating a Canadian embassy on my own 18 military and four diplomats across um borders uh, meeting the prime minister libya uh, to discuss about how we're going to assist him with the militia or going out to kurdistan to train their special forces there's so many stories and that's what i loved about the private security because it was almost that as close a lifestyle to the military as it could be i i when i got out i didn't want to just work for a company and just do rotations and things like that i you know i i i conscious that i was prematurely left and so I would do ad hoc. So every phone call I got was a different place in the world and it was a different type of job, whether it was closed protection, whether it was surveillance, whether it was consulting, whether it was training. So for that, I was then building up such a, um, a profile within the security industry, but also learning so much more about place, some places that we couldn't even get to in the military because of obviously political reasons. I could get into places that you know, the UK aren't allowed into. 
and and that would really open my eyes and give me an understanding of the atmospherics and what's actually genuinely going on on the ground. Um, but for me, I needed to find a niche. You know, how do I how do I stand out from others in the security industry? I just don't want to be another security operator. You know, I, I sort of joke when I used to tell people I was in the security industry. I think they thought I was a doorman from Club Tropicana. <laughs> you know, just go the way I look. Um, so I was out in Libya within 48 hours of, of leaving the military. It was the, um, the Arab Spring. And I soon identified the Libyans didn't want Libya being another Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control. But also that these uh, larger private security companies were charging six-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, when in fact there was nothing in place, which is, uh, which is quite worrying. So I, I came home, my wife... I'd just given birth to our daughter, Molly. And I said, look, I think I've got an, an idea. And I, do you mind if I take our savings out the bank? A bit of a risky. So I took the money out the bank and flew back into country. And I bought 30 weapons on the black market. And I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and just made my own evacuation plans, buried them with communications kits and, and money, hopefully never needing to, to use them. And yeah, and, and I sold those evacuation plans to some of the oil and gas sector in 2012 when the... American ambassador got killed in Benghazi. I got eight German engineers safely from Benghazi to Tripoli. And then as I've touched on in 2014, you know, got the Canadian embassy at 18 military and four diplomats safely uh, on my own. But it sounds very sexy and it sounds very Hollywood. The, the, the success of that was actually understanding demographics, the politics, the tribal influences. I've never needed to dig up my weapons. They're all still in place. Um, so, because everyone has this perception of special forces about abseiling down buildings, parachuting out the sky, and rescuing hostages, yes, is what we do, uh, the offensive action. Uh, but that's only 25% of what we do. 50% of what we do is support and influence. It's called hearts and minds. It's being embedded in these countries. Um, mm. And w- what you see on the TV isn't what's actually happening on the ground. It's understanding those tribal images, understanding actually what's going on. And that's what the success of this was. It wasn't actually, you know, bullying my way through. It was just being, and it's all about communication, chatting to the right people, letting them know your intentions, what you're doing, that you're no threat. About five, six years ago, I bought a little sports car and overspent on it. And my other half went mental about me. So Lord knows how your wife reacted when you said, listen, I've withdrawn all of our savings and bought some oh, weapons. Yeah. Well, thankfully, my wife, you know, and my wife's probably the success, part of this, this success story is, is when I left the military, you, you hear horror stories, you, you hear good stories and you hear obviously uh, horror stories of people's transition. Can I be turbulent or smooth? For me, the military, all I'd ever known since a young boy was growing up in that military environment. I'd spent 16 years in the military. They're almost like your mother and father. They clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time. You know, I didn't know what council tax band I was paying. I didn't really care. Um, to then, when you leave, is almost starting all over again. If you haven't lived in the civilian environment, you know who do I speak to in the council? So it's very it's an alien environment for service leavers. But for me, my mm. wife's very entrepreneurial. You know, has numerous uh, of her own businesses, property developing, wine in, uh, distributing. So she she made that transition a lot smoother for me. She set up my first private security company on her Blackberry watching EastEnders. You know, for me, that's one of where I've ticked the right box in company's house. So, um, so no, when I told her my intentions with the weapons, you know, she saw the long-term sort of gains from it and where I was going with that decision. You mentioned there your single-handed evacuation of the Canadian embassy, which is a phenomenal achievement, mate. But was there any point during that time of your life where you stopped and thought, hang about, this isn't too normal? I, yeah, you're right. I came home from that trip and my normal, uh, my normal standard operational procedure when I got home, I, I'd, I call it recock. I'd basically wash all my clothes, get them dried, ironed and, and then pack my bag ready for the next, next phone call. It could be anywhere in the world. And we sat down, excuse me, sat down that evening, my wife and I, and she quickly, I actually told her if she could uh, get some blood out of my shirt. So when I was evacuating the Canadian embassy, there was an RTA on the border. So I was administering first aid. So one of my shirts got covered in blood. So I said, is there any way we can get the blood out of my shirt? She said, yes, but I'm more concerned why there's blood in there. So I just told her, well, I've just evacuated the Canadian embassy from 
she's like, have you heard yourself? It's like, it's almost like a throwaway comment. And we sat down that evening and um, yeah, neck two bottles of white, red wine. And my wife soon highlighted that I'd only been home 21 days in a, a 365 day calendar. Wow. And what it was, I was basically, and I didn't know it at the time, and it, I know it now, the pin dropped. I was trying to match that adrenaline rush I had when I was still in the special forces without actually coming to terms with the fact that I'd left, um, you know, I didn't have that top cover. You know, yes, it was successful, the operations, what you did, but if they went wrong, you didn't have your friends coming in on helicopters. You didn't have air support and things like that. So something had to change. And I think it's chapter 16 in the book. It's called Dead or Divorced. I think that's where we are at this, uh, this day. So my wife, yeah, in blunt words, said, if you continue like this, you will either be dead or divorced. So my wife is a property developer and she said, look, don't take those risks, you know, come, come stay at home and, and work with me. So I thought, fine, uh, you know, maybe a change in, in, in my lifestyle. But during this period, it's about five years from when I left now, my injured leg was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. I'd neglected my own sort of physical and mental well-being because I'd been so fixated on work. And I just bought a push bike off Amazon. I uh, thought, well, I'll cycle to the office and back. That would be good. It's only eight miles there, eight miles back. Um, bought some Batman Lycra, thinking it was cool, and it wasn't. <laughs> and I did. I just cycled to Invoyos, but straight away, just being active again, just being mobile, I felt like it was a huge weight off my shoulders. It was, some, it was a breath of fresh air. And um, you can imagine with my backstory, after a month sat in these architects and planners meetings, you know, I wasn't really interested in the heating system, plumbing system, or your drawings. And my wife could see that that glaze over my eyes and said, right, you need to do something. Um, so it was about a month before my 40th birthday. And I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. And she said, well, what in? And I said, well, cycling doesn't seem to be aggravating my knee. I wouldn't really know because I'd only ever done eight miles each way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, well, cycling. I, I was thinking, we live in Aberdeen. I was thinking maybe Aberdeen to Dundee. My wife then found the world's longest road. Um, which runs from the southern point of Argentina to northern Alaska called the Pan American Highway. Having looked at it, I thought that is the perfect challenge for me. It goes through so many environments that I, I have operated in the military, but never done on a bike. Um, it's a huge asking. So having only cycled just under 20 miles, I applied for the world record to Guinness. It sounds quite arrogant. And uh, six weeks later, Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful on your application. So um, that was the start of the, the Pan American Highway. But to, to sort of motivate myself, I needed a motivator as well. And I've done a lot of stuff with charity before, especially with some of the military charities. So um, you'll probably touch on it. Uh, Prince Harry and I are good friends and yeah. have been for the last 13 years. And I phoned him up and told him my intentions of this bike ride that I was going to cycle the world's longest road. You know, what campaign should we do it for? And this was 2016. So Heads Together, which most people probably heard about now, mental health campaign was very much in its infancy stages. Um, I was aware of mental health within the military and I'd seen it firsthand with some of my friends, but I wasn't aware how big an issue it was throughout the whole of society. You know, be it young children, teenagers, all the way full to fully grown adults. So I thought, perfect. You know, that, that, is the, that is the campaign we'll do it for. So we now had the challenge and we now had the, um, the, chari- or the campaign that we're going to raise money for. Like I, I used to go through the Guinness Book of World Records as a kid, right? And I used to like look up like what would be the easiest world record for me to beat, you know, or what's the ones that out there they're out there that haven't been done. Yeah. You went and picked one that you pretty much had no experience in. It's fairly monumental and there's already a tough, tough ask to break that record. You know, what was it about that uh, Pan American Highway? Rather than say some of the other long distance challenges, you know, like around the world, for example, what was it about that one that, that drew you in? I think that one, what, what drew me in was uh, South America. I'd hardly been to South America before. We had originally looked at Africa, you know, Cape Town to, to Cairo. But when in the private security industry, I, I pretty much worked the majority of my time in Africa. So for me, if I was going to do something, I wanted to obviously have an experience as, as well. Um, so we found that the, the Pan American Highway, um, it needed to be something I knew endurance wise from my time in the military, I, I, I had it mentally. Um, I just needed to then put that into action on a bike. Uh, maybe a shorter challenge requires a lot of speed. 
uh, more speed. I was obviously conscious that I was 40 years old and wouldn't be as fast as I would a few years. So for me, it had to be long enough that my endurance and, and wisdom would then kick in. But I didn't know much about cycling, but what I was good at from my time in the military and from the time in the private security is being able to plan and execute missions. And that's what I did. I just took a military set of orders and put it on this challenge. I just crossed out ammunition. I just uh, approached it as a military operation. And then as I evolved as a cyclist, I then introduced that in, into the plan. It's definitely a physical challenge, but I mean, reading your account of how the cycle went, some of the kind of obstacles you came up against, obviously like your condition in training obviously was an advantage, but I think probably one of the bigger advantages was the discipline, the attention to detail in the planning. You know, like what went into the logistics of putting that together? You know, I assume you just didn't book a flight, get on a bike at the other end and go. No, no, yeah. So, yeah, I, I you know, um, there's a lot more to it than, yeah, like you said, grabbing a water bottle, a banana and a, a bike and heading north. Um, you know, when I sat down and looked at all it, obviously the route's not going to change. The route is, is what it is. But one of the things that we you know, one of the reasons with the best special forces in the world is not because we're, uh, you know, we've got the best caliber of guys, we've got the best training. It's because we're always evolving, we're always learning from our mistakes. So when we used to come off the ground on operations or training and things like that, you know, the first thing we would do before we did anything else, we would have what's called a hot debrief. And the three questions from that was what worked, you know, what didn't work. And if we we're going to do it again, what would we do differently? Mm. So when I started this challenge and started putting the planning together, I was reading uh, magazines, I was buying books, but I just wasn't getting those answers that I needed. So I thought, well, I'll ask those questions to those that have done it before me. So I spoke to the previous world record holders. I spoke to Mark Beaumont when he did his Pan, Amer uh, Pan America. Um, I, uh, Scott Napier, when I applied for the world record, it was 125 days. Scott Napier had done it. And then by the time Guinness had come back six days later, Carlos from Mexico had done it in 117. Um, I met Axel and Andreas in Dubai, who had the South America. And I got all the information I could from them. And they all started in Alaska and finished in Argentina. All their issues were in South and Central America, be it bureaucracy at the borders, language, spares for the bikes, the highest mountains, the hottest deserts. So for me, in my, with my military head and not my cycling head, was well, why take a gamble with the second half of the challenge? Why not address those issues early while you're fresh? And then when we get into North America, we, we can adjust the, uh, the mileage. So that's why I did my planning. I turned it 180. Just because everyone else went one way doesn't mean it was the right uh, way. And then, as you touched on then, it's like, you know, I had a, a mechanic, I had a soft tissue therapist, I had a medic, you know, naively at the beginning, I thought I'm going to need all this expertise. But in fact, you know, I knew a lot of it any, anyway. Um, but yes, you know, having them would, would, would help me a, a, along the way. You needed support vehicles as well. And it was more really, the vehicles and everything else was more for the welfare of the support team and everything else. Obviously, they're a lot more risk averse than myself. Um, you know, for me, I'm very much, very much comfortable in, in war zones. For them, they're probably not. So, um, you know, you have to think about their welfare as well and the support network around you. It's interesting. You take on these challenges and obviously it is in pretty much every way about you taking on this, this big cycle and, and this big trip. But you do have to kind of juggle those concerns for, you know, the rest of the team and their well-being and, and kind of manage that. In terms of the structure, because I know your wife was also involved in, in the kind of support she was part of the team back in the UK. How did you kind of find out or, or find that planning stage and delivery, you know, in terms of separating domestic life and then delivery of that challenge? No, we're very good at that. We you know we, we do business together anyway. For this, it was just a, another business uh, project. So Alana was the campaign director and oversaw everything that I couldn't see, you know, she's dealing with so much in the, in the, in the background. But again, you know, um, you know, we, we thought when people came on board this challenge, people getting involved for the right reasons, you know, lessons learned moving forward that, you know, I was, the actual, when I say the bike ride was the easiest part, it probably was the easiest part. It was dealing with egos. You know, we had to get rid of the, the medic in, in South America, the mechanic and soft tissue therapist, because, because, you know, they had different uh, agendas from what, what, what we had. So that was, that caught me out. Because when I was doing my planning, I looked at all the potential scenarios that could happen on this challenge. Um, and I had, I sort of factored in contingencies. So the world record was 117 days and I was aiming for 110 because 
there were certain scenarios that I couldn't uh, have a contingency for, be it natural disasters, coups, or, you know, an issue with your support team. So, so that's why I gave myself that fudge. And again, you know, that's all part of experiencing my time in the military. But yes, yeah, Solana was very good in keeping all distractions away from me. You know, I got to Ecuador. I was in Ecuador and um, my decision to go south-north was a good decision from a cycling perspective. I got a tailwind all the way through Peru. It was, it was great, you know, 2,500 you know, kilometers of, of tailwind. But logistics-wise, we had to swap vehicles at every border crossing, which was slowing us up. So we had an RV and a 4x4 bought in, in um, Florida, which was going to get shipped to Panama. So then when we, when we flew into Panama from Cartagena after the South America world record, those vehicles would stay with us all the way. Now, my wife got a call uh, when I was in Ecuador um, two weeks before the end of the first stage of the challenge saying that the vehicles haven't been loaded on the container. They're still here in, in Florida. So my wife, my PA and a couple of my friends, thankfully had foresight to um, fly over and they drove the vehicles 4,000 miles in eight days from Fort Lauderdale through Mexico and Central America. Uh, I broke the wheel record in South America in the morning in Cartagena, flew over at noon. An hour later, they handed over the vehicle keys. You know what I mean? It's just like she was doing a hell of a lot behind me so I could just focus on what I needed to do as, as a cyclist. And again, that was, that was key for this. Yeah, I mean, that must be like, you know, the, the dock sitting on the water with the feet kind of walking underneath, you know, to keep you unaware of it as well. Um, when did you find out when all this had happened? Um, it, it was Ecuador. She made me aware that the vehicles hadn't been low, but I wasn't really aware what her plans were. She was going to speak to a couple of my friends. And but I, I know Alana and she, she'll work something out. You know, we, we had contingencies. Contingency would be, well, we're going to have to hire a vehicle in Panama. And we're going to have to carry on the way that we're, Know, what we're doing and changing it in every border. But I haven't spoken to previous record holders as well. They talked about bureaucracy at the borders. We hadn't witnessed this in South America. That's because it was all to come in Central America. So actually them guys driving down with the vehicles experienced that as well. So it was great for us having that knowledge going into, into Central America. So in South America, I was cycling countries in about seven to 10 days. In Central America, because they're so short, I was hitting borders. So I'd make sure I hit the border at night. So should we be held up or any sort of issues, it was eating into my sleep time and not into record time. So that sort of knowledge uh, that we got from them was crucial as well for the next stage. And then you kind of mentioned it uh, before. Um, there's a bit you cover in the book where, you know, things kind of break down a bit with some of the support team and, and you send some of them home. Yeah. Um, it just kind of leaves you and, and the fellow bootneck, uh, I think it was Ivor. Ivor, yeah. Um, and I got the feeling, like, I got the sense that you quite enjoyed, you know, that kind of stripping everything back, working with a team that's perhaps a bit more familiar to, to how you'd operated in the forces, and, you know, yeah. not having to deal with being pulled in these different directions by marketing and business. Um, you know, is that how you see it? Yeah, it was very much, we, we were almost gone, it was almost expeditionary then. It was just me and him, and, you know, it is what it is. By the time, obviously, the sport team had gone home, which was which was Mexico now, you know, I'm 60-odd days into it. Physically and mentally, I'm I'm on point as well. And and that's what I found at the beginning because, and there's no disrespect to them, because they're from a cycling background, especially in the earlier stages, they're like, you, you can't sustain this. You know what I mean? And I said, well, why not? And they were going off their own experiences or someone else they'd seen. I knew my abilities. And it was almost like when they left, it was like, well, how much can we do? And Ivor is a non-cyclist. Ivor doesn't cycle at all. And we used to have that human every morning, make me a huge breakfast. And he just throw it in front of me and said, I expect 200 miles today. And he sort of joked. But I'd see that as a, as a mini challenge. I'm like, okay, uh, and let's, let's see where we, can, where we can get to. But no, yeah, one, once they'd gone, it was almost like, because the problem I had before is when I got off the bike, I was dealing with, niff naff and trivia you know i'd come off the bike to have food and water to get ready for the next stage not to be dealing with he said this she said this this post went out you know it was like that so when once they'd gone it was like all i had to do was concentrate on the bike ride and that was it everything else had gone it was a massive cloud had gone which was good and then i i got to north america on day 70 and i was 14 days ahead and i thought perfect you know i can take a day's rest here or there if need be but that then soon changed. So Alana had five missed calls off Alana. And as I mentioned before, she's very good at keeping distractions away from me. So my initial thoughts were, our children, there's something wrong 
with our children. So I got off the bike and I, I called her and um, she said, oh, we've been kindly invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. I was like, great. Which just changed the dynamics completely of this challenge because for me to get back for this wedding, I had to be finished at the very latest day 102, which is 15 days ahead of the world record. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. So all my efforts for the last 70 days have counted for nothing. Um, so it's very, it's, it's, it's obviously nice to be invited to such a prestigious event. But um, yes, I was cursing when I got back on the bike because I now had a new target uh, to go for. And I got to Lubbock the next day and we had 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes. Um, so I was grounded for another 24 hours, which now put me two days behind. But there's an app called Windy TV, which you're probably familiar with, very yeah. popular sailors. And I just sat down in that 24 hours and I just made another plan. And um, to get out of Lubbock, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours. And that's what I did. And I just played chess with Mother Nature in the gaps in the winds or when the winds had subsided or we're going to work in our favor. You know, I got to Cheyenne in Wyoming and picked up a beautiful tailwind and the 240 miles in 11 hours with 10,000 feet of climbing just like effortlessly. So we, we did that. So I had 17 days planned for North America and I did it in 11 and a, 11 and a half days. Uh, so I'd caught up that time and I was now ahead of where massively ahead of the world record and, and back going to be back in time for this uh, royal wedding and I got to a town called Whitehorse it's about a week outside the finish line and um, there's a guy called Michael Strasser he's got three other world records he's, he's an endurance cyclist and he's sponsored by Red Bull all, all the big brands and he'd come out on social media that day and said that he was going to cycle the Pan American Highway and be the first man in history to do it under 100 days so that news got to me and I was like great so for me the dynamics had changed once again. Um, for me, I wasn't comfortable. I knew I'd smashed the world record, but I wasn't comfortable. I just didn't give it my all until the end. So I cycled for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to make sure that I came in under the 100 days in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. Um, we, you've talked about planning, which was, which was very important on this challenge, but way I see the success of this challenge is being almost that expeditionary. It's being reactive to the situation. You can have the best plan in the world, but it never goes to, well, it, sometimes it goes to plan, but you're very fortunate if, if it does. There's always going to be issues, but don't, it's being reactive to the situation in front of you. You know, I, I set off thinking anything under, anything lower than 117 days, I'm happy. At the end, anything lower than, a hundred days, I'm happy. How the situation changed on the ground, the royal wedding, the support team, everything else, you know, and you just, just deal with what's in front of you. You can't change that situation. You just have to deal with it. And I think that's my time in the military, having been in a lot of uh, similar situations, I think that's what helped uh, uh, in, this, in this environment. You know, you kind of broke one world record going through South America. You got your certificate for that. And it almost feels like that was, you know, one section and then this second section where, you know, you've got this deadline for the Royal wedding, you've got this, you know, tar new target of the world record of a hundred days. Um, you know, at least there's two distinct sections, um, that you kind of go through there. And it just seems quite fortunate that, you know, things came to a head with the support team, just as you got to Mexico where, you know, that uh, you'd kind of done South America then, and you could almost focus on the rest. Do you kind of see South America, was that more like training for that second challenge where things really did ramp up? Yeah, I, I do. I think, um, like I said, the first wheel record actually, the South America one was, as I call it, it was a Brucey bonus. It wasn't the one I was going for, but it was almost like it was breaking it down into short objectives. And that's what, that was one objective in Central America. But I think you're right, yeah. By the time I got to North America, you know, I'd had 70 days of cycling in me. Physically and mentally, I was a lot more stronger and it was almost how far can we push it? And I almost then saw it as mini challenges. I think if I hadn't heard about the wedding or Michael, um, you know, I probably would have taken my foot off the gas. And then when I did hear about Michael later on, you know, it probably been too much to catch up. So I was very fortunate that when the information came to me, I was in a position that it wasn't too far. I could act on it and, 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 and get there. I always, you know, hindsight's a great thing. I always wonder how it would have gone if I'd known about the wedding and Michael from day one. Yeah. 
you know, you don't know whether you would have pushed yourself too hard um, or, or, or not, or, or mentally it may have been just too, too overwhelming. You just don't know. But I was very fortunate that, you know, when it came to me, I, I was in a position that I, I, I could act on it. So we did it in 90, 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. But actually we had five days off, three due to weather and two due to logistics. So I had those five days that I probably would have pushed on if I, if I, if I was worried about the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you broke that record. I mean, t- talk about like on the wire in terms of timing. And that's the equivalent of like in films where like, you know, they defuse the bomb with three seconds left to go, you know, and, you know, with what, like four hours to spare or something like that, you made it. Yeah, well, yeah, about 11 hours to, to spare. But you, you're, you're right. It was by giving myself, again, that the plan changed even to the last day, the plan changed. So for the last two days, I had 250 miles to cover. So the last 400 miles, just so the listeners are aware, is, is the Dalton's Highway. The Dalton's Highway is where they film ice truckers. Uh, it's that road there. So it's, it's, it's not smooth. It's very gravel. It's, it's slow going. So the last two days, I had 250 miles. And I thought, well, I'll do 150 miles today. It leaves me 100 miles tomorrow. And I'm well in under the, under the um, 100 days. I did the first 50 miles and I got to a roadblock at noon. And, and the girls like, ah, oh, you can't pass until eight o'clock tonight. And I said, oh, we're on a world record. Americans being Americans, black and white, you're not passing. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. So straight away, I'd lost eight hours. They'd taken eight hours off me. And which obviously put me a little bit under pressure. So um, I got back into the RV and again, I just wrote a plan and it, I, I just put pen to paper, worked out the speed and, and things like that. And I said, well, eight o'clock tonight, I will continue cycling until I get there. You know, I'll stop every two hours for a coffee, but it was minus 18. Because, because it was Alaska, it was the land in the midnight sun, it didn't get dark, and that was what was to my advantage. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I then got in. It was probably the, very, the hardest day cycling because I was only moving about nine miles an hour because of the strong winds. Um, I remember Alana, and also I was conscious, my wife and kids were also in Prudhoe Bay. They'd all flown in to the end and I hadn't seen them, uh, my kids, for nearly four months. And I just wanted to go, go see them. And I remember the documentary team driving forward. I was probably about a couple of hours out saying, I don't think Dean's going to come in today. We've never, he's, he's, he's on, the, on his last legs. And my wife, you know, she very much pushes me. She drove out just outside the gates and they got out the car, my wife and my PA, and the wind just took them off their feet and just blew them across. And even she said, I think, I think you're right. He might struggle, but I think five hours later, they got the call. He's coming in. He's coming in the gates. You know, I just kept just kept going and, until until I got in. I was conscious, obviously, staying hydrated with the coffee and things like that. But um, but yeah, you you have this visualization of like the finish line, like the Champs Elysees and, and things like that. You know, it was literally nine mile an hour on black ice uh, with a, a ski mask, ski goggles, and, and everything else. It was nothing glamorous about the ending at all. The biggest challenge I've done is track the. Camino de Santiago it's 600 miles across Spain and when I got I remember when I got to the end the, the first time I did that you know you kind of get to this city Santiago and you build it up in your head that it's going to be like this Champ de Lise moment this big finish and it's always very ordinary you know you kind of get there and you're not kind of there's no fireworks you're just like right I need a wee where, where can I get some food who can I you know kind of say hello to that kind of thing you know how did you feel when you got to the end you know was the elation was it exhaustion was it a combination of all three it was probably a combination uh, of all three and i understand that visualization is a key area though for for athletes you know i know chatting to team sky and a few others with a psychologist they, they're getting to visualize crossing that finishing line you know nothing before the training or the hard bit in the race but crossing the finishing line so me it wasn't really the finishing line we had a we had an event uh, a big fundraiser coming up uh, six weeks after I got back uh, called the wheels down ball. So my visualization was that event. That was my, my visualization that pushed me along. But yeah, when I crossed the finishing line, yes, it was obviously relief. It was nice to see the family and everything else, but I had a Royal wedding to go to in less than a week. And we flew back on the 17th and Harry's wedding was on the 19th. I still hadn't come to terms with the fact of being around my family, never mind the world's media, but because of this size of the event and what it was, it overshadowed my bike ride completely. Um, and I, I wish I just had a little bit longer to 
appreciate and, and, and take it all in before we then had a, another big, a big high. So I was on Lorraine Kelly, I think, on the Monday morning afterwards. And it was supposed to be me and Lorraine for five minutes talking about this amazing bike ride and all the money that we raised for, for this cause. And in the end, it was like Harry's wedding. I was like, I do realise, uh, you know, <laughs> genuinely, genuinely, when I got back to Scotland, you know, the first two questions I got was, how was the wedding? I was like, really? I've just cycled <laughs> thousand miles. Came the first man in history to do it under 100 days. And that was generally everyone's question. And it, so for me, it was, it was quite, it wasn't deflating, but I just didn't get an opportunity to enjoy it as much as I'd liked. Um, and, then it, and then we had the wedding. But it, it, you know, again, going to such an amazing event. But I'd lost 12 kilos. You know, I, was, mm. I looked like Boris Johnson in a suit I did at the wedding. <laughs> I was hanging off. Did you have to get your suit retailered? Yeah, well, my wife, we, my wife actually, Ivan and I bought a tape measure on the road in America. And we, we um, when we when we found out the day after we got a tape measure, we did the measurements, and, and then we 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 then sent them to about to about two weeks out before we shouldn't be losing any more weight there. No. Yeah, and um, yeah, no, I was twelve kilos uh, lighter. Wow, and you, you kind of mentioned um, that that kind of post challenge slump that that can sometimes happen, and you know I'm, I'm kind of familiar with with that. Do, do you think having the wedding, having the wheels down ball? kind of focus on help distract you from that or, or did it kind of perhaps you know dis- take the attention away from that achievement you know you've just done this cycle but all people want to ask you about is the wedding or- no I think uh, I, I was aware that um there was going to be uh, some sort of depression afterwards because you know although the challenge we've just done it was almost a two-year project so this is something you've been working on for two years and you hear a lot with a lot of these athletes who go to the World Cup or the Olympics. They've been training for four years for this event. And when they come back, you do go into sort of a depression. So I knew it, w- it was coming. Uh, I was supposed to taper when I got back. And I'm very objective driven. When I go on a bike ride, I have to have a purpose. It's either a, an objective, a, a mileage or, or speed or, or cadence or whatever. So I cycled out to Bankery, which was about 10 miles, and had a coffee. And then on the way back, some free cyclists spotted me started racing me so I just came back beat my PB for that Strava segment it was like <laughs> it's not really much of a taper um so I put the bike in the garage and actually as you mentioned the wheels down ball we had in six weeks time and so I, I, my next focus was that but I was aware that you know there was a slight depression but I knew it was coming yeah so is the bike still in the shed uh do, do you still have the the bike in question uh, so we, we had two two bikes uh, on the challenge. So one's got auctioned off and the other one's going to the Orbea Museum for the, their Hall, Wall of Fame. But I still ride the Orbea bikes as an ambassador. Very nice. Did you give your bikes a name? No, I didn't actually. You know, a lot of people said, is your bike got a name? I had a lot of names during the challenge. <laughs> repeat, but uh, no, no names. So you raised about a million quid for Heads Together. Um, now that you know, a few years have passed, you know, do you know what kind of work that's helped fund? Yeah, so um, so yeah, you're right. Touched on. We raised um, just over nine hundred thousand pounds. You know, the target was a million. I think that was harder than the challenge itself was that. But um, that went to eleven charities, which all fit under the uh, the Heads Together campaign. And you know, especially for like likes of Young Minds, we knew that the money they got ensured that fourteen thousand children would go speak to be able to speak to someone about any, any, anything so for me I, I then replicated that into miles so I knew when I was cycling when it got hard every mile that I was doing was helping them but there's um in the back of the book I think you see there's there's a list of all the impact that it's had on all the charities that open up helplines uh, came for you know there's so much so much it's gone to um it's hard to put in summarize so I didn't actually uh, read the physical book. I got you on Audible, uh, audio book. So for my commutes, I've had your dulcet tones in my ear uh, for the last week or two. You, you've kind of ticked off the Pan American Highway, world record, beat her twice over, raised a million quid. What comes next? I've heard there's some good TV box sets. Are you just going to catch up on those? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, my USP is, you know, I'm not a cyclist. You know, when, I, when, we, when we set out on this challenge, my sponsorship marketing team at the very beginning, we did a SWOT analysis, the strength, your weaknesses, the opportunities and threats. And the only weakness that came about was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I took as a strength. Um, so I don't see myself, I still, and I'm proud to call myself still a novice cyclist. And I think that's where a lot of people can relate to it with this story is that, you know, I'm not Geraint Thomas, I'm not Chris Froome, I'm, I'm a, just a normal 
guy who started cycling at a late age, but has, has achieved something. Um, so for me, my USP, which sets me away, sets me aside from others, is I like to take on a, a sport or discipline I've never done before. So my next challenge is to kayak the River Nile from source to sea, which is a, wow. again, a, another world first. But obviously with the current climate, the, um, you know, we don't know what's going to be happening you know, this year, never mind ne- next year as well. So, um, so that, that's on hold. Um, but as I said to yourself, I think there'll be a couple of more mini challenges. Um, you know, take advantage of, of the bike, maybe do something else on the bike as well. Um, but that's two different you know, bikes, very much CV. Um, fitness related was, was kayak and yes there's an element of fitness but it's more it's more technique uh, and that's what I'll do I'll just find you know, I've cycled the world's longest road and I'll paddle the world's longest river well you're setting yourself up for a, an international triathlon <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah are you going to do the Nile is that for charity um, it will be to raise awareness I think um, lessons learned from the last challenge is actually the charity stuff can distract you massively from the, the challenge it's, itself you know that took up a lot of my time um when it could have been focused into that but but for me you know i, I did it for charity something that's close to my heart was the mental health and and actually we've seen where the money went you know I, I i loved it i'm so i'm so glad that i did it um so we will do it for a charity and we will raise money but i won't set myself a target set myself a target of a million pound was huge <laughs> um, yeah you're putting yourself under under pressure there as well. Um, you know, I, I speak to people who do challenges, as, as you'll know, and, you know, they need to raise a certain amount from to go on the challenge. And that sort of takes over. They get distracted by that. And a lot of them actually pay it themselves because it's, it's just a, a, a weight off. Um, but yeah, we probably will do, and it'll probably be for modern, it will be for modern slaving human trafficking. I think you mentioned in the book that was your initial cause that you wanted to raise money for in the Pan Am. Yes, yeah, it was because the Pan Am, uh, the route there, there's a lot of smuggling. It's a, a big smuggling route itself, and I wanted to raise awareness of that. But obviously, when Harry mentioned about the the mental health, I thought, okay, yeah, let, let's do it for that. And and it, it was quite relevant in the fact the messaging I was trying to promote that physical activity helped your mental state. You know, when I met the Royal Foundation, they sort of said, you know, what is your messaging? I was up. So I, 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 that was my answer. But I was actually met with a response that, oh, you can't use that. So well, why not? And I said, it's not been scientifically proven. This was back in 2016. And then four years on, it's very much recognized as one of the coping mechanisms for mental health. So I'm glad that I, I carried on promoting that message. And then the second message to promote to people, it doesn't matter how old you are, whenever you start a sport, uh, that you can actually still be very good at it and, and compete at a high level. Very much so. So in terms of you taking on this new sport, the kayaking, where are you training? No, well, we've got, uh, obviously, up in, living up in Aberdeen, we've got a great playing ground here with the Cairngorm Mountains. So we've got the River D, the River Don for sort of whitewater stuff. Uh, I'm working with Epic Kayaks, uh, which is, is like a, a race version ski. It's more like your ocean skis because... On that one, you know, 95% of the Nile is flat. So, you know, that's one type of boat you're going to use. But then when you've got grade six waterfalls, you're going to have to be in a raft. You know, you can't do anything else. I mean, you've got the creek boats. So it's, it's trying to um, train in, in all of those, from white water to, to flat water. Um, so, yeah, I can train here in the sea. You can train the River D, the River Don. But as, um, as you know, I'm moving to California the next couple of weeks and again there's plenty of places there that I, I can practice both cycling and and kayaking and surfing I've, I've really enjoyed this kind of chat through your story um just to kind of wrap up you know the podcast is called couch kicker uh we want to encourage people you know me included uh to kick their couch habit you know just get out and push themselves further um that said your ideal night in on the couch who's there what snacks do you have and what film are you watching so uh, me and my wife uh, most evenings we, we we tend to switch off at about seven o'clock um on netflix um at the moment we've been watching um the bridge uh mm-hmm. so watching the bridge at the moment and um you know i'm, I'm always conscious of my weight but uh, in the evening I, I do like to we, we have a thing called yum yums up here in in scotland yeah yeah makers yeah so a yum yum and a cup of tea nice I, I grew up in scotland so i'm glad you just didn't say tablet oh well tablet's <laughs> great for, uh, for for energy and sugar and yeah no it's um 
No, we still have a bit of tablet. We, in fact, we're taking a box of it to America. Nice. <laughs> the, the Tonics tea cakes as well. Load them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So uh, where can people find out more about you? So social media, website and so on? Yeah, so um, uh, we, I've got a website, but I'm just about to launch a new one. It will still be the same, www.deanstock.com. Um, on Twitter, at deanstocksbs. And you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook uh, as the same. And we will update all the challenges. Um, you can buy the book. Uh, get it signed on there or you can go to on, go to amazon it's the book's called relentless fantastic i do recommend the book it was a good read so uh, dean it's been a pleasure feel inspired i've got a new bike coming soon so i'll send you some pictures of my blisters uh, when i get started and welcome to come back on uh, once the nile challenge is is up and running and you know what's happening with that definitely i'd love to come back on great stuff all right dean Stott, thank you very much thank you very much that was dean Stott. Um, I thought that was a really good chat and a good message there on the positive effects of taking on a big challenge. I think what doing something like that can do is hit a reset button on your mindset, kind of open you up to the possibilities of what you're actually capable of. And you know, it doesn't have to be cycling the entire length of a continent. I don't think many people have got that in them. It can be something as simple as, you know, just getting off the bus or train a stop or two early one day walking the rest of the way home. It can be signing up for your first 10K, your first half marathon, or it can be something non-physical that just takes you out of your comfort zone, you know, like a new hobby, something you've never tried before. And I think it's clear that Dean is operating at a much higher level than most of us, but what you can do is find your own level of challenge and take it from there. If you'd like to read Dean's book, Relentless, it's out now in paperback. Or you can do what I did because paper books are so old fashioned and you can listen to it on Audible, read by Dean himself. Uh, I love it when the author of a book is the one to read it, you know, rather than Stephen Fry, who seems to read everything these days on Audible. Um, I just listened to that when I was in the car, when I was out for walks, when I was cooking dinner. Uh, so a really good way to kind of take in Dean's story. And if you're not already an Audible member, we can give you a free trial so you can listen to the book without paying penny one check out the link in the episode description sign up for your free trial and get relentless by dean stock if you are looking to step things up and take on a bigger challenge then why not check out our sponsors the altitude center the altitude center are experts in you probably guessed it altitude they're innovators in the world of simulated altitude training for both acclimatization, save your head and off up into the mountains, but also for performance and, and rehabilitation purposes. Kenya is this country that dominates in distance running. Most of the champions come from this one city at the edge of the Rift Valley that's 7,000 feet above sea level. And there's a good reason for this. You know, being at altitude means your body produces more red blood cells. More red blood cells means you're taking in more oxygen for your muscles with every breath. That's why marathon runners go and train at altitude. But not everyone can hop on a jet and go off to Kenya to train, especially if you're just doing a 10k fun run. But that's where the altitude center comes in. They can simulate being at altitude in their sort of altitude chambers. They've got these Darth Vader style face masks that can simulate altitude. And what they'll do is pop you on a treadmill, uh, on a bike, Put you through the paces and kind of measure your performance. Dean Stott actually trained with the Altitude Center, he talks about it in his book. He went there and trained before he took on the Pan American Highway, so they do know their stuff. So if you want to experience top level training, then head over to altitudecenter.com, browse their programs, and you can use code COUCH, C O U C H, to get 50% off a single session pass at the Altitude Center. That's code COUCH at Altitude Center. Com. And finally, Couch Kicker is sponsored by Action Challenge. They're your one-stop shop for pushing yourself further. Whether you want to take on an ultra challenge right here in the UK, go out there and walk, jog or run 25, 50 or 100 kilometers across some of the most stunning landscapes in the UK, all with the very best support and hospitality, then check out their Ultra Challenge series at ultrachallenge.com. Or if you fancy going somewhere further afield, then they also run treks, mountain climbs, and even cycles if you want to emulate Dean's challenge. And they do that on five continents around the world. Loads of countries, Peru, America, China, Morocco, Tanzania, Nepal, India. Go over there, check out what they've got. 
And the best thing is every booking on an overseas challenge is backed by their five star promise. That protects your booking against any future COVID lockdowns, any future travel restrictions, and gives you a no quibble money back guarantee if they do have to cancel a date that you've booked onto. Plus, if you use the code COUCH when booking any overseas challenge, you'll get £100 off your booking. So head over to actionchallenge.com and use code COUCH, C-O-U-C-H, to start your adventure today. That's all from me. You can follow the podcast over on social media. We are at CouchKickerPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. That's where we'll be posting behind-the-scenes snippets, links to our guests and more. And you can check out more info on the podcasts on me and view all of our episodes at couch-kicker.com. Catch you later.